The Bible starts in a garden and it ends in a city. Starts in a garden and it ends in a city. And the path towards this eternal city is through the wasteland. Now why? Why does it have to be through the wasteland? Well, because the garden has been lost. All that we desire has been lost, and so we have to travel through the wilderness and go up on the top of this mountain. And there on the top of the mountain, we find something. And we bring what we find back down the mountain into the wasteland, and there we begin to replant Eden in our homes, in our lives, in our hearts, and in our minds, and in the lives of people. Something on the top of the mountain, and you've brought it down. And to say, today, we still garden, this Edenic garden, right in our homes. And our job is to regrow what has been uprooted, to bring an Edenic type place. So that God's people would sing as they left their homes and traveled out into the wasteland, out into the wilderness towards Jerusalem, the city of peace. And then they would go all the way up to the top of Mount Zion, the Mount of Joy, and there they would worship God. And then they would take the blessings that they found on the top of Mount Zion and bring them down the mountain back to their homes. And you would find peace and rest and flourishing and joy there. All because they took the journey. We are going to do the same today and we're going to figure out just how to do that. We're in Psalm 128. There's a song of ascents. Ascents is the technical term for a pilgrimage. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. All the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. First point. Happiness and flourishing. Are you happy? And how do you achieve this happiness? What will make you happy? You know, the problem that we have is we continue to chase and chase after happiness, yet it keeps slipping through our hands like a mist. You know, you've been at this for at least 20 years, some of you 70 years, trying to find happiness, and yet you keep finding like, it, like it's, it's elusive, it's, it's dancing around you, and you can't seem to grasp it and hold on to it. And when you do, it's just temporary, and then it's gone. You know, we, we've had some horrible things going on with our son. And this last weekend, not this weekend we're in, but the last one, he made like this great turnaround. And I found myself so happy, I was thanking God. And then Monday hit, and I went to a pastor's conference. It gets pretty crazy there. And there, at this pastor's conference, I got a text from Elise, and she told me that he declined again. And I just felt myself wanting to leave and just come home. And it was like this joy that I had found just was gone. But there is a type of joy and happiness that isn't circumstantial. And that's really what you're after. It's not a mist. So how about we try something? We're going to look at the Bible and we're going to open it up and we're going to see if it can help us. And we're going to ask this question to the Bible, should we pursue joy? 
And the answer that the Bible gives you is yes, with all your might, pursue joy and happiness. And we know this because the Bible tells you to praise God. And what is praise? Praise is the overflow of joy in your life. Praise is the finish line of joy. Praise is what it's like when joy is bubbling up in you and it's got nothing, nowhere left to go that it just bursts out into praise. And the way there, we're going to find in three or actually four Hebrew words in our verses today. So the first one is a sheer, which is a state of bliss or contentment. It's often translated as happiness or to be blessed. The second word is barak, which also means blessed. It's also often translated as blessed. But that word is about the source of the blessing, the source of the joy, the source of the peace. Third word is tov, and this is a translation here that means well, also translated good. And this is about you. I'm losing you here with these words. This is, this is an important word, though. It's a word that means you have all the potential within you to bring Eden back into your home, into your life, into your children's life, into your spouse's life. And then the fourth word is shalom. You've heard this before. It means peace. And it's about a flourishing in every way, spiritually, emotionally, socially, and culturally. Now, what I just have described to you is a picture of Eden. And the key to this is the word barak, which is the source of all of this blessing. And where is this barak found? It's found up at the top of the mountain. It says in our verses, up at the top of Mount Zion, a hole is cut into heaven and the blessings of God, the presence of God come pouring down and go out down the mountain, throughout the city and into your home. It's the source of your potential to actually be able to bring Eden into your house. This tove. A house of happiness and joy and growth and peace and contentment and wonder. Now for us today, Mount Zion, it's pretty far away. I don't know if you know that. Actually, in this place, you are facing east right now towards the temple. And you're facing east because they want you looking that way. And there you could see the temple and you could see Mount Zion. And it's meant to focus your attention. And that is meant to be a canvas that reminds God's people... That God has come. And there is a place where his blessings come down. Now, it's a spiritual place now. So here's what you need to see. I want to take you through this beautiful imagery. And I'm going to use some more Hebrew words. So you're going to have to stick with me, okay? Deal? Can you handle it? Okay, good. So, beautiful imagery. In Eden, Eden was the mountain garden of God. And within this mountain, underneath the mountain, there was a special underground water stream. And that water stream bubbled up into Eden, and then it grew and grew until it became rivers that were pouring out of Eden, and then those rivers would drain out into the ocean. Now, the Hebrew word for this water is odd. I'm not saying it's odd, I'm saying the word is odd. And then there's this ground in Eden, the dust of the ground. And what God does is he takes the dust of the ground, which is called Adama. And then he takes the water, which is odd, and he puts them together and he smushes them up. And that produces Adam, or Adam, humanity. And what that means is you are made of this special underground water that bubbles up in Eden. And let me tell you something about this water. The further the water gets from Eden, the more chaotic it becomes, the more destructive it becomes. 
And the closer the water is to Eden, the more peaceful and content and joy-filled it is. And you are made of that water. You're 60% water. And what you're meant to hear in this is that the closer you are to God and to Eden, the more joy and peace you have in your life. And the more you run from God and run from Eden, the more chaotic and destructive you become and you don't have peace in your life. It's gone. And the problem that we have is that we have left Eden. So the source is gone. And that's why you are fumbling around in the wilderness, grasping for joy, not seeming to be able to find it. But then something happens. Fast forward a little bit in the Old Testament, and the temple appears. And the temple is meant to represent Eden. It's the presence of God. Though it's only a mirror of it, though it's only a shadow, it's something. And there becomes the source of joy and peace. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am the new and greater temple. Meaning now, he's the one who's ripped open the heavens. He's come down the mountain to be our blessing of joy and peace in our life. And then, by faith, let me tell you what else happens. You now have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. So these waters that Jesus is meant to be of Eden now dwells in you. So now, guess what? You become this temple of God. So you become this little Eden. It's, 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 it's miraculous, in fact. And then you, as this little Eden, you go up the mountain and you come back down. And you bring joy and peace into your home because you're taking the source of blessing into your home. And it's God. There's this place in Isaiah that you know, had everybody confused. It says that there's rivers that are climbing up to Mount Zion. All the nations are climbing up. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense unless those rivers are meant to be seen as the nations of people who are made of this water, who by the call of God have climbed the mountain, met with him, come down, and changed their homes because they went up that mountain. Now, the application of all this beautiful stuff is very simple. Bring Christ into your home, to every room, every nook, every cranny. Let him call it all his. Let him rule in your home. Now, the practical way to do this, so we all want Eden in our home, right? Like, why would you not want that? So what's the way there? What's the path there? The answer is our second point, the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord? Yes. Fear of the Lord. Whenever pastors will talk about this phrase, fear of the Lord, often they'll say something like, this means reverence or awe of God. And I do think that's right. But I think that there's more to it, because otherwise the translators would just call it reverence and awe, but they don't. And the reason that they don't is because there's, it means something more. And I've been thinking about this phrase for most of my Christian life. And, here's, and, and I'm not happy with my understanding of it, but here's my best shot so far. When you fear God, you have now found within God the raw potential for Him to be a storm. For him to be a giant wave. If you've ever caught, been caught up in a giant wave, you know that you have no control over what that wave does to you. It does what it wants, and you just tumble around. The person who knows this about God, fears the Lord, yet approaches him, approaches him because he's also found grace. And so this person looks at the storm, looks at the wave, and, and sees all the reasons to fear the storm and the wave, yet approaches because this person is trusting God, this giant wave. And he's trusting this giant wave to jump into the wave so that the wave will place him on the top of Mount Zion, the presence of God. 
knowing that they're going to be completely out of control. And so the Christian knows both the terror of God and his grace. Some of you only know his grace, and some of you are only terrified of him. But if you want to know who God is, you have to know both. In the Exodus, Moses goes up to the top of this mountain, and he comes down. And listen to what he says to God's people. Fear not. God has revealed himself to you so that you might fear him and not sin. The combination of knowing the raw potential and terror that God could cause but then also trusting in his grace produces someone who follows the ways of God. And when you are not following the ways of God and you're trying to and it's not working, you have a problem. Either you don't know the terror of God or you don't know the grace of God. You obey the storm and you listen to this monstrous wave knowing that at any moment it can crush you, but you dive in still because you trust the wave. Don't fight the storm. Don't fight the wave. Let it do with you what it wants, and it will carry, it's good. It will carry you up to the top of the mountain. So what we need to do is fear God and follow His ways, not the ways of the world. Follow His ways, not the ways of your spouse. Follow His ways. Some of you guys are like, yeah. So Follow His ways, not the ways of your children. Follow His ways, not the ways of your boss. It means you fear Him over your fear of the future. It means your fear of Him is greater than the fear of the unknown. But you have someone that you can trust, and you cannot trust the future, and you cannot trust the unknown, but you can trust Him. And then you know what fear does? It it drives you right into His Word. And you start looking through it. God, teach me how to live my life. Teach me your ways. I want to know them so bad. God, teach me. So you start scouring through them. And you learn all the laws of God. And you know what? As this is happening, you're getting close to being able to grow Eden in your home. But you're not there yet. What you need now is to become a master of the law. Like Christ and like King David, there's a place where Jesus is doing something despicable. He's picking grain on the Sabbath. Oh, the audacity of him to work on the Sabbath. And as he's doing this, the religious leaders are condemning him for it because they know the rules very well. They know the law very well of God. Only they are not masters of it because they don't understand the intent of the law. So Jesus says to him, Have you not read when King David took a whole army and brought, brought this army to eat of the bread of the presence meaning the bread that was only supposed to be reserved for the priests. This was a wrong thing to do, but David did it, and it wasn't wrong in the eyes of God. Why? Because David understood the intent of the law. He knew the spirit of the law. He knew the purpose behind it. Uh, Stop signs. They're there for your safety. They're not there just to annoy you and make you stop. And so if you look behind you as you are approaching a stop sign and there is a car that's clear they are not going to stop at that stop sign, don't be like the religious leaders of Jesus' day and stop at that stop sign. You run the stop sign, you break the law in order to not be injured yourself or injure the people behind you. You have to understand the intent of the law. You must know the law of God and understand its intent. And this is the hard work of fearing God, yet going up the mountain anyways, exploring the heart of God, 
Knowing him in his word and through prayer. I mean, deeply knowing him, not studying him. And once you do, you come down the mountain into your homes and you bring the spirit of the law, the ways of God, right into your homes and a garden begins to grow. And this brings us to our third point, this flourishing garden. This is a picture for you of your work life or, or, or just your actions in life and it's a picture of your home. So first, your work. It says, in all that you do with your hands, there will be flourishing in your work. Now, what you need to understand is you've just gone up to the top of the mountain. You've just met with God. You've explored his heart. And what's happened up there is your character has changed. And many of you right now, you're measuring your work life and if it's successful or not based off of the world. Based off of these categories and values that the world has told you you must have. And when you go up that mountain and you come back, you come back changed. And you begin to value things differently. And you begin to measure success differently. And what you begin to do is you say, well, God has taught me how to order my life properly. We learned about this last week. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen. We learned about how to order your life properly. And then once you do that, all you have to do is live how God tells you to live and let him handle the rest. He will bring the fruit. You just need to be faithful. Now, it might not be the kind of fruit you want, but God is far smarter than you of what kind of fruit you need in your life. So that's the first part. Second, your wife. So you come down the mountain, you enter your home with the ways of God, and it produces a flourishing family. Now, let me say a few things here. First, if you're single... Take everything that I'm describing here and help it inform you about what kind of spouse you ought to be looking for. First, take those principles. Second, if you need to see that this psalm is, is directed primarily towards men and husbands and fathers here. And the same thing was true last week. And if you're, and if you're thinking, oh yeah, but, but what about me? Can I go up the mountain and come back too? Yes, of course you can. But there's a reason that this psalm is aimed at men, and you want it to be aimed at men. We looked at last week, and we, f we saw how this amazingly crazy statistic that when, when women, wives, mothers, follow the ways of God, 17% of the time, the rest of their family follows after them in the ways of God. 17%. But when a husband or a father changes his ways and starts following the ways of God, 93% of the time, the rest of the family follows him. That, that statistic should be ringing in your ear, men, for the rest of your life. You have a huge responsibility here. And so the picture is men coming down the mountain and then meets his wife as a vine, fruitful vine. And vines in the Song of Solomon are seen as images of sexual union. It's this union that is meant to flourish in the context of marriage, of a promised covenant. And usually we stop there because, well, that, that word deserves a lot of attention. And it requires a lot of explaining, but I'm not going to explain anything. I'm going to move on to the stuff that no one ever talks about because it's a little bit embarrassing. And, and, and if you're a little prudish, it might make you turn red. But husbands, pursue your wives. Romance them. Delight in them. Show them that you desire them greatly. And wives, same thing. You're welcome, husbands. You can laugh at that. Stop being so prudish. 
a vine is also has to do with festivities. This is about a party. And so you're looking at your spouse and you're saying, We're, let's, part, let's be like party friends. Like, I'm going to enjoy you. You're going to enjoy me. We are going to do things that we love to do because we are investing in each other and we're having this party together. It's your party friend who's also your lover. It's great. And then lastly, this produces the fruit of the womb. Children are meant to be a product of a deeply passionate love for each other. Learning to be a good spouse and when it says this word within the house, talking about the, the wives and mothers being, a, being within the house, the word is deep in the house. It's meant to be the heart of the house. In other words, wives, mothers, you are the heart of the house. Without you, the house is dead. The house is desperately in need of you. And then the fruit of the womb take their first breath in this dangerous world out here in the wilderness, in the wasteland, but then you start creating a garden of Eden in your home, in the wasteland. And then it says that they are olive shoots. Now, an olive, shoot, an, an olive tree only produces its shoots, and the shoot is an exact imprint of the tree, biologically speaking. That means whatever your character is, However you've been shaped by God, you are shaping your children that way. So have you been shaped by God? Because if you have it, well, you're going to be shaping your children in a way that is not the ways of God. It's important stuff here. They are an exact replica of you. And that means that not only do you need to know the laws like the religious leaders did at Jesus' time, they were failing because they weren't masters of the law. So to become a master of the law, you go and you meet with God. Like, really meet with him. You pursue him with all your might. And we're like, God, where are you? I've been searching for you for too many years for me to not find you. Keep searching. Maybe you've got a problem with fear and grace and you don't quite understand how that works out. You've got to keep pursuing him. And you learn the ways of God and then you start seeing the beauty of both obedience and love. Of discipline and grace. And this olive tree that you are raising up, this olive shoot. You know, it takes 40 years, up to 40 years for one of these olive trees to fruit. And that means with your kids, you're investing in them for a long time. I mean, you are really, and you are giving them your everything. You're making them a higher priority than your job. You're going all in with them. You're investing in them so after 20, 30 years, they are prepared to go and grow their own Edenic garden. So you're being... You're caring for them. You're cultivating them. And when I say care for them, be careful here. I'm not saying you baby them. Because you're about to have to send them out into the wilderness, out into the wasteland, and they have got to do something that's incredibly difficult to do. They've got to figure out how to grow Eden in the wasteland. It's practically an impossible job. So they are desperate for you to show them how to do it before they leave your home. So you don't baby them. You're intent on raising them into strong men and women with wisdom after God. And one of the best places to do this is around the dinner table, it says. They're, they're around your dinner table. Now, why eat with your family? Seems to be a great place to bond. 
to grow and invest, to flourish, and to enjoy them. But you look at that and you say, okay, well, what's, let's ask what's the intent? The intent is, this is the way that you're, this is one of the main ways you're bringing God into their life around the dinner table, but what are other ways to do it? Well, if your family's involved in sports, then bring God into your athletics. In everything you're doing, you're asking God, how do I bring you into this? You're driving and you're taking your kids to school. How do you bring God into that moment? That's a great moment for you to be with your kids. Capitalize on it. They can't run away from you. They can't go anywhere. You've got them. So tell them what they need to know about God and pray with them. Bring, them, bring God into their first day at school. Bring God into their driving lessons when they start driving. Bring God into their first fight that they have. Bring God with them to their first party. Bring God with them when they go off to college and teach them to bring God with them into their own home so they can build a garden too. And then, when enough families start doing this from generation to generation, a heavenly metropolis is grown. Enough families start doing this, Eden starts covering the earth. You know, that was the original calling for humanity. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion, subdue it, which means cultivate, means you're a gardener of Eden. And Eden was not supposed to be just in this one spot. Don't worry about the cop out there. They drive around here every once in a while and distract you every time. Just come back to me. Talking about Eden here. So you, you, you be fruitful, you multiply, you fill the earth, and you have dominion, you cultivate. And then, generation after generation, pass down from kids to kids to kids, and from friendship to friendship, from church to church, what you find is Eden starts to bloom into a city. And all this happens because of Christ. The seed in the garden that was buried to produce life. It's our last point, Christ in the garden. We must see that in order for these gardens to grow, Christ must become the seed that dies. That produces life. Now, Jesus takes a trip into the garden, but also up the mountain, because he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he begins to pray. So this is him going up to the mountain in the garden. This is a beautiful imagery. So he's there in the garden and he says to God, his Father, Father, let this cup pass from me, but your will be done. And when he says, let this cup pass from me, he's talking about the cup of the storm, the cup of the wave, the wrathful waters that God has in store for all of humanity that will not turn to him for grace. It's meant to be a terrifying image. And Christ feels the weight of it all. He feels it so much that he begins to sweat blood. He's given a picture of what's to come. He's given a picture of the wrath. He's being a picture of him becoming the seed. He starts sweating blood, which is something that you can do if you're under enough stress. It's called hematidrosis. He experiences the stress of it all, the worry of it all, the weight of it all. And it nearly crushes him before he dies. His death he saw, and it caused him anxiety. Because he saw that he was going to be the seed that would be buried. But once he was buried in death, 
and he rose up out of it. He becomes the olive tree, the first seed that becomes the olive tree that we are grafted into and become shoots, exact replicas of him. Oh, man, this is beautiful. And we're growing up into these images of him. By faith, we've been grafted into him. And he's also like the water that's been buried underneath the mountain. And he rises up, and when he does, he's this special underground water, this living water that comes bursting forth out of Eden, and it flows down, down the mountain, into the cities, and into our homes. He is the seed that by faith will help you grow a garden, and he is the water that will grow you and your family. So go to him. He's your hope. He's your joy. He's your peace. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray. Help us to be people who climb the mountain through the wasteland so we might meet with you. And help us find you, God, because you have come to find us. And give us strength on that mountain to come down and be the kind of people who can rebuild Eden here on the earth. God, we want to do it. And we can't do it without you, so we need you. God, we're struggling with doubt. Not even just on a daily basis, but an hourly basis. So how in the world are we going to build this garden? God, you're going to have to come. How long, O oh Lord, must we wait for you? So come now. Help us rebuild. Give us the strength by your grace to approach you, the storm, without fear. So that you might carry us up the mountain. Give us the blessing so we might grow Eden now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.